Welcome back to Between the Killers and Me. We're your hosts. I'm Eden. And I'm Charlie. And we are here to kick off your weekends with new cases of murder. Mystery. And survival every week. On today's episode, we're covering the cases of Immaculate Basil and Bonnie Joseph. Before we start, don't forget to follow and rate us on your favorite podcast platforms. You can find our links in the episode description. One last thing before we get into today's case, we just wanted to also say, please do not harass anyone we talk about in today's case. During our discussions, we're expressing our own opinions based on facts we find about the case. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia, British Columbia has the highest rate of unsolved murders of Indigenous women and girls in Canada. Part of that may be attributed to the location of the infamous Highway of Tears. Today we will be speaking about two cousins who disappeared separately along the Highway of Tears. When doing my research, I initially was just covering Immaculate Basil's case, and then I found out about Bonnie during my research, and I wanted to highlight both of their cases in this episode because I was researching Mackie's case first. That is the one I'm presenting first in this episode, but just keep in mind that Bonnie's case actually happened several years before Mackie went missing. There are many disappearances along the Highway of Tears, and these are Mackie and Bonnie's stories. June 14th, 2023 marked the 10-year anniversary of Immaculate, Mackie, Mary Basil's disappearance. The mother of one was last seen after leaving a house party, and no trace of her was ever found. Immaculate Basil was born on December 8th, 1985, and was likely affectionately named after the holiday she shares a birthday with, the Roman Catholic Feast of the Immaculate Conception, and it is also said that the Virgin Mary influenced her name as well. Mackie's parents walked out on her and her siblings when they were fairly young, and along with two of her sisters, Mackie was thrown into the foster care system. Mackie's sisters described life in the system as tough, though keeping in contact with each other helped. Mackie grew up in a different foster home than her two sisters, though from my understanding, Mackie would frequently see her sisters and have sleepovers with them, using this time to catch up with one another. Mackie grew up in Tache, British Columbia, the largest community within the Talasden Nation. Just 65 kilometers north of Fort St. James, situated on Stewart Lake, this small town consists of a tight-knit community. There is one road in and one road out of Tache, causing it to be extremely isolated. And Tache and Fort St. James are both situated along the Highway of Tears, which we touched on briefly in an episode before, but we'll talk about it a little bit more now. So the Highway of Tears is a 700 plus kilometer stretch of Highway 16, which is located in central British Columbia and it is the source of many missing and murdered indigenous women and girls from that province. Due to isolation and poverty in these communities, many people who live along the stretch of Highway of Tears don't have cars, so they are forced to hitchhike from town to town. And so hitchhiking in this area isn't uncommon practice. And I know growing up, a lot of people are told, oh, don't hitchhike. Don't pick up hitchhikers. You know, it's not safe. And it it may not be safe in like the big cities or like the smaller towns. And it isn't really safe anywhere. But in these areas that are more isolated and poverty stricken, people kind of don't really have any other option. There's really no like bus service out there in 
2017, they did open two bus routes, but due to the infrequency of these buses, people can be stuck in neighboring towns for up to 24 or 48 hours. So hitchhiking to get back home rather than staying at an expensive hotel is often what people do. Just wanted to mention that. After leaving the foster care system, Mackie and her sisters would secure their own jobs and houses. Mackie worked as a substitute for a school, filling in for the secretaries and teachers when they couldn't make it. To stay connected, Mackie and her sisters would call each other daily at 10 a.m. and talk about their lives as adults. In her early 20s, Mackie entered a relationship with a man. The two of them were in a dedicated common-law marriage and had one child together until 2013 when the two suddenly split when Mackie was 27 years old. The news of their breakup came as a shock to Mackie's whole family, considering the couple had been together for so long, and no one knew of any problems. Mackie's partner allegedly broke things off because he wanted to be with another woman. Shortly after their breakup, Mackie was staying with her brother. Knowing she had to be there for her now five-year-old child, Mackie didn't let the breakup get her down. She did start drinking around the time of their split, which was uncharacteristic for her, but she focused much of her energy on her child. Mackie was known as an introvert, a homebody who didn't really drink or do any drugs and was never known to party. So word that Mackie planned to attend a party alone on the night of June 13th, 2013, was also uncharacteristic for her personality. In preparation for this party, Mackie got dressed in gray yoga pants, a black hoodie with a maple leaf logo on the front, and white runners. Mackie asked her brother to purchase two bottles of vodka for her, and with one of these bottles in hand and her iPod shuffle in the other, Mackie set out for this party on the evening of June 13th. The house party was in Tachi and was a 20-minute walk away from where she was staying. Many of these party attendees were Mackie's cousins, so it wasn't like she was stepping into the complete unknown, and she may have felt a level of comfort and familiarity at this party. Just before midnight, Mackie departed from the gathering and returned to her brother's house, where she retrieved the other bottle of vodka, and she called out a goodbye to her brother, and then continued down the trail that would lead out of Tache. Mackie would miss her daily phone call with her sisters the next day on Friday, June 14th, and was just assumed to be staying at another family member's house after the party the night before. Worry set in when Mackie didn't answer the Saturday call either, and by the third missed call on Sunday, Mackie's sister was phoning around to try and figure out where she was, who she was staying with, and who had seen her last. These phone calls only provided more worry as it was discovered that Mackie had left behind her cosmetic bag, and she hadn't taken any changes of clothes with her. Mackie was known to really enjoy doing her makeup, and she always brought her cosmetic bag with her if she was going anywhere for an extended amount of time, so it was really unusual she'd leave that behind. Many members of Mackie's family didn't have cell phones, and some didn't even have phones at all. The community is small enough that you could probably walk to wherever you needed to go in a matter of minutes. And so, when there was still no word from Mackie on Monday, a missing persons report was filed. Family gathered more information while waiting for a response from the police, and a group of committed members of the community organized a search team. Police began searches the next day, questioning family and pursuing extensive land searches with sniffer dogs in an attempt to find any signs of Mackie. In Mackie's case, there were a couple light rains just after she went missing, 
but when they started the searches, there was a thunderstorm. And I also see a popular misconception that rain completely eliminates the trail when sniffer dogs are being used. During my research on sniffer dogs, I also came to find out that rain won't destroy the scent, but a light rain can actually freshen the old track. A heavy downpour can kind of pull the scent in like pools and grass and stuff. So that could have also hindered any kind of search attempts. In my research, it became apparent that sniffer dogs are apparently controversial. (laughs) People say that they don't perform their jobs well enough. I found a study that showed that sniffer dogs did a better job locating things inside rather than outside, so that also could have hindered search efforts in Mackie's case. While police were conducting their initial questioning, attempting to piece together the story of Mackie's disappearance and the night of the 13th, they came to find out that Mackie did not leave the party alone. She was seen in the presence of two men, one being Keith, a younger cousin who was described as, quote, an outstanding kid, end quote, and hardworking. The other man was named Victor, and he was a nearly 50-year-old who had multiple prior criminal charges and was described in a way that was completely opposite of Keith. Police, upon hearing this, decided that the next step would be to talk to Keith and Victor to gain their sides of the story. After speaking with Keith and Victor, the police gathered that the trio left to a cabin about an hour drive away because Victor needed to gather metal sheets for a roofing job. The group made it to the cabin and were leaving in a white truck. This white truck would get into a sudden accident when it struck a tree at a high enough speed to crack the tree in half. Along with the tree, the exterior of the truck was also badly damaged. Someone then would return to the cabin to get a black truck which was used to pull the white truck from the crash site. For some reason, they didn't travel home in the black truck, but supposedly continued in the white truck until it crashed again later down Leo Creek Forest Service Road, as a cable had wrapped around the truck's axle and damaged it enough to where they couldn't continue further. Keith and Victor alleged that at this point after the accident, Maggie split from them, that she traveled away from the crash on foot. There were some who recalled seeing Mackie attempting to hitchhike along Leo Creek Forest Service Road in the early morning hours of Friday, June 14th, but these claims were quickly debunked. Mackie was apparently very adamantly against hitchhiking after the disappearance of her cousin, Bonnie Joseph, who we will talk about very soon, uh, who went missing while hitchhiking along the Highway of Tears in 2007. And Mackie didn't have a phone, so she had no way to call for help or for a ride. And the stretch of road up by the cabin had no cell service anyway, so it's not like she was picked up by someone she knew either. The truck and scene of the crash did not present any trace of Mackie, her belongings, or any signs of foul play. Upon recollection of the previous days, as family members were trying to piece together Mackie's last whereabouts or any details of the case, It came to light that on the morning of Friday, June 14th, Victor was spotted taking a notable stroll through Tachi. It was 10 in the morning, and one of Mackie's cousins recalls looking out of their window to be presented with Victor strolling down the street with his clothes soaked up to his chest. His arms and shoulders were dry, as if he'd waded through deep water holding his arms above the surface. With it being 10 in the morning, and the truck crash being 
so close to the cabin, which was an hour drive away. It wasn't likely that he would have walked the entire way from the truck site. According to Google Maps, it would have been like a 15-hour walk within the forest, like an hour drive. And if he had gotten wet due to the crash, due to the truck crashing into a lake, which it didn't, it was a kilometer away from the nearest lake, he wouldn't have been wet by the time he made it back to Tache, probably. So he probably got a ride. I found a source that was kind of like, oh, you know, who would pick up this man on the side of the road, like wet clothes, whatever. But one of Mackie's cousins actually said that the mentality towards hitchhikers is that if you see someone along the road, you pick them up. Uh, between the wild animals, bears, probably mountain lions, whatever, and the isolation, picking someone up could save them from curious bears or going an hour without seeing another vehicle. The town of Tache does sit right along Lake Stewart, so maybe he decided to take a dip in that lake in t- at like 10 in the morning with all his clothes on. But, like, why would he do that? Like, why was he wet? That's just my question. It didn't really feel that Victor and Keith were being upfront with everything, so police decided to interview them further and even carried out polygraph tests on the two, which they passed and were cleared of any involvement. Authorities haven't ruled out the possibility of an animal attack nor foul play, but with the searches yielding absolutely no traces of Mackie, We're left asking what happened to her and where is she? I just mentioned this, but I'm mentioning again. What was Victor doing with all his clothes soaked? That makes no sense to me why you would be what? Because I can't just see somebody being like 10 a.m. Let's go walk in the water over there. Fully clothed. Because I I don't know about other people, but I know for myself, you would never catch me doing that. Full clothed? Into water? No. Unless I had an extra change of clothes? Absolutely not. Especially if I had to walk around in that all day? Never. (laughs) Which begs the question, why did he go in fully clothed? Unless he walked out to the water to hide evidence. Not that I'm blaming him, but like, it is suspicious. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's just... I'm just thinking it like my way. Like, I'd never do that unless there was a reason. It's like the thing with running. I don't run. If you <laughs> see me running from some... I'm running from something. If you see me running in general, there's something going on. I'm just going to say that why was why were his clothes soaked? That's that's my only question. That is killing me. Like, what? Like, I... Like, but that's not even... To me, it's not even, a, like, a curious question as to, like, why is this connected to the murder? It's just, like, why? Why? Like, who would, like, odd. What's going through your head when you did that? Like, why yeah. are you wet? Yeah. Like, That's weird. it would be odd They're regardless just, like, of the circumstances. walking past me in the middle of Edmonton, and I'd be like, the fuck are you wet for? Did you just take a dip in the filthy-ass river valley? Get North out Saskatchewan here. River? Hello? <laughs> why are you? <laughs> <laughs> it's just, at the end of the day, it's just weird. Even if it does have, even if it has no correlation to... What happened to Mackie, it is just, in general, really weird. I agree. To me, this case kind of reads as either some people are not giving a clear enough story of that night's events, 
and maybe we'll figure out what happened when someone comes forward in the future. Or that Mackie really did just wander off and met some horrible fate alone in the wilderness. Animal attack. My awesome might, might have been like she was drinking and just so happened she could have like slipped and fell somewhere, hit yeah. her head, passed away from that, or just got lost and just has passed away in the wilderness. So like if she were to have gone off by herself, like I could see a plausible like just like stumbling she around. She hurt herself. Yeah. And died that way. She got lost and died because she got lost. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's always super sad with these cases because it's like, will we ever figure out where what happened to them or will we ever even find a body? Regardless of Mackie's level of intoxication, what were what was this trio doing all hanging out together? Mackie and Keith were in their 20s, Mackie being 27, Keith being younger than Mackie. And Victor was almost 50. And also had a character that completely opposed Mackie and Keith's. But I mean, like, Mackie and Keith were cousins. Yeah. I could see, like, cousins being cousins, like your cousins, your children. Yeah, like, I could see that hanging Victor? out. Where's Victor, Victor coming from? Wait, like, you meet a random guy and you're like, yeah, let's go to your cabin an hour away and, you know, go get stuff for your job. I think that... Mackie's cousin mentioned Keith knew Victor through work, but still an odd choice of person to hang out with, I think. Her disappearance was described as uncharacteristic of her personality. And I think that this uncharacteristic personality that she was like kind of leaning into that night could have come from like this new habit of drinking, from the breakup. Maybe, like, she, like, her persona changed with the use of alcohol and partying. And perhaps she maybe wanted to change her character, too, to seem like a more interesting person, meet new people after the breakup, whatever. And I think that in that kind of state, your guard is, like, completely down. You're, you're just kind of, like, enjoying life, not expecting the worst from anyone. That could have totally attributed to whatever happened. When Mackie went missing, her child was just five years old and family are adamant that Mackie did not leave of her own free will as she would not leave her kid behind. I don't know. That's very weird. Cause like every time I hear like the polygraph tests and they passed, I'm always like, you can control your heart rate to make it look like you're not lying. Yeah. They're not admissible in court. Right. So they're, that like, goes to it's show. It's not 100%. They passed. 100%. And they yeah, were, I mean, like, like yeah. police cleared them. So I mean, there's not much we can say there, but. Yeah. I don't know. See, for me, it always seems, I always think of, like, what would I do in this situation as, like, if I were to see this. But at the same time, I know for a fact that my memory is so fucking shit. Yeah. That I'd be like, did you see Mackie? And I'd be like, Maybe. Did I? I don't know. Could not tell you. I have such a bad memory, and I know for a fact that I'd be such a bad witness. Maybe, maybe people at the party did see something, but like they were either drinking or, you know, like the two of us have a really bad memory and woke up not remembering anything, or like it was like, what, four days later that they filed it? Yeah, so all the, at the party, the party goers said that they saw Mackie leaving with Keith and Victor. 
And then when Mackie went back to her brother's, sources were either unclear. He could either see or, like, she told him that, like, she was with someone else, Mm -hmm. possibly. But that was the extent of her going off with Keith and Victor. And because everyone was disconnected, didn't really have phones, didn't, couldn't really call around to ask everyone individually, have you seen Mackie? So it didn't come forward until, until they filed the missing persons report. And then they heard word that she was with Keith and Victor. And then they went and talked to Keith and Victor. My thing is that this was like four days after a party where I'm assuming most people were drinking. Yeah. I'm sober right now, and I don't even know what I have for breakfast. So, <laughs> like, that's <clears throat> like that's like the one thing about it's so tricky with witnesses because it could be like weeks, and it's like, what do you remember this person looking like? And it's like, if you're not paying attention to it, yeah, you're not gonna remember it because it's like that thing I see on TikTok where it's like, pull out your phone and tell me what your phone battery is. Oh, it's at ninety eight percent cool put your phone away now what time is it and they'll be like "Uh, um i have no idea so if you're not truly looking for something in specific you're not going to remember yeah and i know four days later you're not going to really remember because it's a party you're doing your thing there's nothing wrong you're not going to be really paying attention for something in specific yeah so i think it's like maybe somebody did see something that might be like crucial into where or what happened to Mackie, but they can't remember because it was four days later. Honestly, yeah. Which is unfortunate, but you can easily forget something super crucial, yeah. especially if you're not looking for something specific. Absolutely. I did mention briefly before that Mackie's cousin, Bonnie Joseph, went missing along the Highway of Tears as well. And she went missing eight years before Mackie did. In 2007, Bonnie Marie Joseph is a 32-year-old from Yekuche Nation and was reported missing in December of 2007 after no one had seen her in three months. Like Mackie, Bonnie grew up in the foster care system in Fort St. James, but she would also live with a family over 100 kilometers away from Fort St. James. Growing up, she was described as always laughing, a trait that would carry into her adult life too. There's not much information I was able to find regarding Bonnie's early life, but growing up, she and her future would-be husband both attended residential schools. I wasn't able to find Bonnie's exact date of birth anywhere, but she would have been born in 1975-ish to have been 32 in 2007. Like, that's so weird to put into perspective. Like, to put that into perspective, residential schools were still operating the year Princess Diana died. The last residential school closed the year Princess Diana died. Which is why a lot of Indigenous people have a lot of trauma still because there are people who attended it in 1997. This isn't like an 1800s thing that it was closed in 1899. Like this was, this was less than 30 years ago. That's crazy. In high school, however, Bonnie attended the same school that many of her cousins also attended, which helped to provide some closer relationships. In her 20s, Bonnie would marry her now husband, and they would have five kids together. Eventually, in 2000, these children were removed from Bonnie and her husband's care and placed in the system. Bonnie's cousin mentioned that she did not know why the children were taken from Bonnie and her husband's care. 
In a statement from the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, Bonnie's children recall that they were very young when they were placed into the system. They were given letters as to the reason why they were taken when they aged out of the system, but the statement is redacted in some areas and the reasoning is still not clear. Bonnie would struggle with addictions, and I'm sure that losing her children didn't help with that. Bonnie's husband was described in the same statement by his children as having a drinking problem, which stemmed from the trauma he faced at the residential school he attended. And losing his children also had an impact on his behavior too. Bonnie and her husband recorded details of every effort they took to get their children back, and they moved from the area Bonnie's foster family lived in to Fort St. James to be closer to their children. In regards to regaining custody of her kids, Bonnie would attend multiple hearings and visitation appointments. Bonnie would never miss an appointment, regardless of the location or day. Described as very independent, Bonnie would always get herself to places too, despite the fact that she didn't have a car. Knowing she'd have to be in one city on a specific date, she would sometimes leave days early to ensure she'd get there on time. Because of the fact that Bonnie didn't have a car, she would hitchhike from appointment to appointment, city to city. Quote, she made every appointment no matter what, end quote, her sister recalls. Bonnie's routes would often take her around the Prince George and Vanderhoof area. Bonnie was last seen by a cousin when they just so happened to run into each other outside of an A&W in downtown Vanderhoof on September 8, 2007. At this time, Bonnie said that she was meeting with a counselor and considering treatment. She was attempting to get clean and was excited because her court dates were coming to an end, and it would soon be determined if her children would be placed back in her care. Bonnie was feeling optimistic. She had an appointment she needed to make for September 9th in Prince George, so she parted ways with her cousin and started walking east down Highway 16 towards the direction of Prince George. Bonnie missed this appointment and would miss several more, a couple custody hearings along with multiple visitations. Because of her independent lifestyle and her transient state of being, it may not have been clear that Bonnie was missing at first. She was finally reported missing in December after these several missed appointments. Bonnie was searched for in several women's shelters that she was known to stay in, but no trace of her was found there either. A year into her disappearance, police let the family know that they found Bonnie's wallet containing her ID and an uncashed check discarded near a lake. They had discovered this item shortly after Bonnie went missing, and before she was reported missing, but never reported it to the family until about a year later. Like Mackie, Bonnie cared deeply for her children. She was hoping to get them back in whatever way she could, so I don't think that she would have willingly left anywhere. She had several appointments she was due to attend. She cared deeply for her children. She was trying to get them back. And her wallet was found discarded. So this really points towards foul play to me. Thinking of it in my way, you best believe I'm heading to the fucking bank and cashing my check. Like, the possibility of losing it, the possibility of somebody stealing it, that's my fucking money. I need that in my bank account. So it's really weird for her wallet to be found with the uncashed check. That's weird. Yeah. That points to foul play in my books. So... Five years after her disappearance, in 2012, it was still not clear what happened to Bonnie. And even now it is not. There are, quote, no leads as to whether Bonnie got a ride with a friend, hitchhiked, or took a bus to a nearby community, end quote. Like in Mackie's case, 
no traces of Bonnie were ever reported to be found. So several serial killers have been known to use the Highway of Tears area as their hunting grounds. Out of the notable caught ones, the most recent one operated between 2009 and 2010. His name is Cody Legabikov, and he was 19 years old at the time of his first murder. Other than that, there have been several others, but they all operated prior to 1993, which would exclude them in the disappearances of Mackie and Bonnie. And Cody was only 17 at the time of Bonnie's disappearance and was in prison at the time of Mackie's, so it's not like he was the culprit in either of those cases. So if they were both killed by unknown people along the Highway of Tears, it's by people who have not been caught yet. So, I don't know. In Mackie's case, like I mentioned before, I think it could be solved if people just come forward. Or, you know, maybe she just completely wandered off, like you said, just like... It's been a long time for Mackie. Well, both of them. Bonnie went missing first, but Mackie is 10 years, so Bonnie is 18 years. Yeah. So if they are somewhere in the wilderness, their bodies would be pretty decomposed by now. Along that highway stretch, there's just completely like vast, expansive wilderness of like nothing but like trees and lakes and rivers and... Because there's for sure no way people are going to do like a a search of those areas because it's so heavily forestry super wildernessy. I also just feel like it's also just because they're indigenous. That's a that's a big part in it too. It's like how Canada is today and how a lot of people who are from Canada are. It's like, well, they're indigenous, it's whatever. We can talk about any indigenous case on this podcast. It will always result in the same thing. Police not doing as much effort. If, yeah. if these were white people, sad to say, this would be a different circumstance. And then As far as Bonnie's case goes, I think that with the elusiveness of some killers, especially serial killers, Mm -hmm. it makes it really difficult to find any evidence to pinpoint a certain individual. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I know for police, whether they're white, black, indigenous, whatever, if you don't have the evidence, you will not solve the case. Like, I... I know what I just said, but I think it's especially for Mackie and Bonnie, their cases are so out of the blue and with such little evidence, you're not going to solve it. Well, yeah, especially because the, the Highway 16 is just a highway that's like very isolated, used by a lot of like truckers, construction workers, whatever, like using it to travel between these like isolated places. Mm-hmm. And So you can be in and out very quick. And like I said, it's just vast, expansive wilderness. Like I could see, I I could see and understand like police not being able to solve them because of the lack of evidence. But then at this point, it's like the Highway of Tears is known and called the Highway of Tears because of the amount of missing people that go missing there. I feel like it would be responsible to, I don't know, make it more safer like add surveillance cameras along that long stretch i know it's it's a long stretch no it's it's really hard because like it's a long stretch like you said it's like 700 kilometers and then also like that area only like just recently got cell service or is like in the process of getting cell service still like it's like so isolated there's like 
there's not a lot going on. I could get that. But at the same time, I feel like people should be making more of an effort to make it more safe. Since the like uh, 1970s, there's been like many people, as specifically indigenous women, going missing across that highway. Mm-hmm. In order to help with this problem, with the limited resources that they have, they have put up some billboards across the highway periodically being like, don't hitchhike, you know, these people are missing, showing, like, the missing people on those, like, giant posters. But really, like, what, like, I don't know what they really could do. Like, cameras, I don't think, are, like, like super plausible. The fuck is a billboard gonna do, though? If you don't have a car, you gotta get there somehow, so fuck the fucking billboards. Like, if you gotta get from point A to point B, you're going to hitchhike. And if you've had, like, good experiences in the past, like, Four times out of five. Like, you know, like the past four times hitchhiking were good. But, you know, again. the fifth one just happens to be the... Murderer. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like maybe not cameras. That's a little bit too of an out. Because, like, at the end of the day, if you're counting more than 40 plus people who are dying on this one road, wouldn't be a plausible thing to do something about it to make sure that further people are not going to be dying on this road. And they have, like, increased like rcmp patrol across the highway in the past but it it, honestly like it's it it just appears to not be enough still so or you could do like rcmp pit stops where it's like stop your car we're gonna check where you headed like today. actual traffic stops yeah yeah because when i lived in mexico when you were going into certain towns if you're going to certain areas if you're traveling on a road for super long there would be traffic stops and they'd be like where you headed what are you doing? It wasn't an illegal thing. Like, it wasn't like, we're looking for drugs right now. <laughs> it was just like, what's up? Where are you headed? I feel like RCMP pit stops like that could probably greatly reduce it because, you know, you're pulling people over and it's like every car that's coming past. Like, it's I like, oh, you good... two are hitchhiking? Oh, what is that back there? Oh, is that is that blood? Get out. You know, yeah. RCMP pit stops, I feel, would probably greatly reduce it because you're pulling people over if you're a serial killer and that's your hotspot you're not gonna be fucking killing there because you if you know you're gonna get stopped why would you risk killing somebody yeah maybe not the cameras but you know traffic stops and something else that i've kind of forgotten to mention throughout this episode that plays a role in the reason for the missing and murdered indigenous women along the highway of tears is the lack of education and publicity surrounding this problem for the longest time this wasn't something that was really in the media and people really were not aware of this so they were not able to tell other people and warn other people so the lack of knowledge and the lack of awareness really played a part in a lot of disappearances so combating that with education the billboards have the education sentiment behind them they hope that this education will save people's lives that that's kind of all i'm gonna say yeah. i i just think that like it it's such a isolated stretch of highway and so many so many people travel on it so many different people mm-hmm. that i don't think we'll ever find out who did this so like i said rcmp pit stops because you know if you really want to murder somebody that would be your highway to go because it is very isolated and you could do it clearly well that wraps up this week's episode i don't know what our plans for this week are what the eighth tomorrow yeah i'm camping tomorrow 
yes. like full on camping or like glamping? Well, it's a camper. Yeah, but yeah. I got an RV. You're glamping. I'm glamping. I'm not. Do you, do you think I could fucking sleep in a tent? God, no. I can sleep in a tent as long as it ain't on some fucking weird ass surface. Because I remember this one time I went camping on these solid ass rocks. Woke up with my air mattress like deflated and I was sleeping on like gravel. I've no, never we, been we won't do that. I promise. I've never been more mad in my entire life. Um, I woke um, up ready to punch people in the face. We'll have a comfortable camping experience. I as long as I have an air mattress and a fluffy ass sleeping bag, I'm good. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to this camping trip. I'm looking forward to this camping trip too. We got to go camping now. Hell yeah. I love camping. We're going camping. We hope you have a good rest of your week yes party hard party hard take care stay safe we'll see you in the next Keep episode lying. Peace out. if you have any information regarding immaculate basil's disappearance we urge you to contact crime stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS or 1-800-222-8477 or the Fort St. James RCMP at 250-996-8269. If you have any information regarding Bonnie's disappearance, you can submit a tip to the same Crime Stoppers line at 1-800-222-8477 or the RCMP E-Division at 250-649-3900.